afternoon from Boston. Good evening in Rome, Italy. This is uh, Nir Isaacovic from the Applied Ethics Center at UMass. Uh, I'm very happy to have my uh, good friend and colleague uh, Claudio Corradetti as our guest here uh, on the uh, UMass uh, Boston Applied Ethics uh, uh, Center. Claudio, good evening. Good evening to you, Nir. So Claudio is an associate professor of political philosophy and human rights, or political philosophy of human rights, I should say, at the University of Rome, uh, Tor Vergara. Uh, he has a background in philosophy and public international law. He's taught uh, in many other places uh, before uh, his position at Rome, including uh, the University of uh, Graz in Austria, the University of Oslo. Uh, he's written important books on uh, transitional justice, on the philosophy of human rights, and he is now uh, working on a brand new project or somewhat new project on uh, Kant's uh, international philosophy of international relations. Um, so, Claudio, thank you for joining us. And um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit uh, about Kant on international relations, specifically his uh, very celebrated and famous essay, uh, Towards Perpetual Peace, uh, that I know that you've started uh, working on. And I guess one question is, uh, well, maybe tell us something about the background of writing that essay, the, a bit about the background of the writing of that essay, what you take to be the main points Kant is making, and then we'll talk a little bit about why you still think it's interesting. Yeah, well, I think that essay, which is actually a sketch, as uh, Kant says, is not like a systemic work that he conceives, is uh, very intriguing because uh, it's a kind of somehow draft that on which we can still think about. Uh, so in terms also of interpreting his ideas and goals, and I think the main um, uh, goal that uh, Kant has in that essay, which is something that we see also from the title, Towards Perpetual Peace, is that peace uh, is a concept that includes always some sort of tension that is never solved once for all. It's not a sort of uh, condition that we achieve uh, 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 as a status quo, but it includes some sort of tension between morality, law, and politics that we need to reconstruct from within, you know, the partition that we find uh, in text of, of Kant. So, mm -hmm. so my goal has been that of trying to disentangling these sort of tensions between these different uh, layers uh, through a sort of uh, key ideas which. Uh, are summarized within the term of transitionality, but applied in this non-specific uh, uh, way of understanding transitionality in terms of progressing towards uh, peace. Uh, so I think that that is the key uh, element within the text that we need mm -hmm. to understand. Mm -hmm. And what 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 do you take to be the gist of the argument, the main sort of arc of Kant's argument? I know. Yeah, I, I think. Kind of walk us through it quickly for the sure. preliminary articles, the definite articles. Well, I think Kant has a, a, as a as a as a, a, an argument which is based on the three uh, definitive articles that we find in the book. One is that in order to have peace, 
we have to think of states in terms of republican states with a separation of powers and a constitution and a rule of law and so on and so forth and rights obviously recognized to the citizens the second element is that we need to conceive of international relations that is of the uh, relations of the states among themselves in terms of a federation that shares a certain uh, principles and goals starting from the security protection against aggression uh, illegitimate use of force and so on and so forth and then there is the third element uh, which is the most original one uh, that Kant introduced within the discussion of international law uh, uh, of the time um, and is the so-called cosmopolitan right uh, obviously there, there is a long tradition uh, dating back to the historics on cosmopolitanism and there is also a fairly long tradition which I'm also reconstructing which dates back to this notion of the right to visit which is for Kant this idea of being uh, a, cosmopolitan, a cosmopolitan citizen being uh, a guest in a state for temporary uh, for a temporary um, time so uh, De Vittoria already spoke about this right uh, to uh, visit, but obviously uh, that way of talking about that right, because it was not constrained as uh, Kant then uh, does, uh, led to, to some sort of uh, colonialist uh, uh, implications and possibilities. So that was the right of the Spaniards coming to the uh, uh, to America and having the right to, to uh, settle there for uh, commercial reasons. Obviously, Kant wants to avoid this. He is very strongly uh, opposed to the idea of colonialism. And uh, the right to visit instead plays a very important juridical uh, role of uh, connecting different jurisdictions, which means different uh, 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 legal entities that connect through uh, visits uh, uh, in individuals as foreign uh, visitors, which means that they have to be recognized some sort of rights, and also their visit will bring some new issues that we discuss, commercial issues or issues of uh, um, uh, sharing of liberties and uh, platform, political platforms among different entities. So these are the three pillars on which uh, Kant uh, consists of uh, the cosmopolitan uh, peace. And uh, it's a legal framework, actually. So it, it, it works with politics and uh, morality uh, because for law, uh, um, law for, for Kant was also uh, um, an element of uh, moral uh, thinking but it is a, a legal project as such. So in that sense, it's not just based on ethical virtues. Mm -hmm. So if I summarize briefly, tell me if this sounds more or less right, the main elements of Kant's legal and normative proposal uh, are um, the spreading of Republican government, and there the famous argument is that Republican governments uh, are less supposedly uh, warlike because the people who make the decisions also uh, bear the costs of those decisions. Uh, and there's been some interesting contemporary work in uh, international relations to see if that's empirically true. 
um, then this move towards slowly this move towards one uh, uh, world state uh, from uh, the assumption that the condition of uh, if the condition of peace is having some kind of central government, then there should be a government of governments. I know this is very broad. And then finally, cosmopolitan right, based on the cosmopolitan idea that what matters about our identity is our ability to be autonomous rational agents rather than the contingent place where we were born. And as a result, there's a sort of universal right of visitation and exchange and so on and so forth. Does that sound more or less right? Yeah, that is a fair reconstruction, except that for the second definitive article, what you refer to as the word state or the state yeah. of states, there is a lot of controversy on uh, how to understand that concept. Right. Because, you know, like one way is to uh, conceive that as a sort of positive condition, which eventually uh, will uh, arrive. Uh, if, if the kind of uh, state that uh, Kant would uh, refer to is a sort of confederation of states. So mm -hmm. it's the confederation of states that guarantees stability and peace. Yeah. But, um, but there are also some, some passages, uh, uh, textual evidences, also in the perpetual peace, where he says, that uh, that would be ideal in the sense that that would be according today our idea of right of right. the right but then that is something that uh, that state would refuse to uh, uh, realize to uh, make it uh, real because that would be a contradiction with the same idea of state sovereignty right. they, they would have to give up their own uh, uh, sovereignty right. And that would be contradictory to the idea of uh, domestic uh, uh, law and the idea of sovereignty, state sovereignty as such. So, so the puzzle is exactly there. How to conceive this relation between the autonomy of the states and the necessity to uh, connect states with uh, the other states in order to overcome an international state of nature. Right. Uh, so, so the other way is to see this connection in a more uh, sort, some, some sort of counterfactual way. Like mm -hmm. uh, states should uh, behave externally as if they were entities within mm -hmm. a world state order. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, the same internal criteria that they do apply to their own citizens somehow are also transferred mm -hmm. outside the relation mm -hmm. to the other states. Yeah, so it's almost a Kantian original, Rawlsian original position kind of way of thinking about how a state has to behave, ignoring its own contingent advantages, resources, and so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Rawls was uh, a very acute reader of that. Uh, right, of right. So Claudio, part of what I've always found fascinating about uh, uh, this essay, um, uh, are the resonances that it has in contemporary international relations. And as it always is with the history of ideas, the resonances aren't in any way precise. It's not as if the argument actually, as an argument carefully taken up, makes, it way, makes its way into uh, uh, international relations or uh, uh, foreign policy, but bits and pieces of it or sort of echoes of it make their way into foreign policy. 
and I think of some, I, th I think of some trends in recent years. So, for example, uh, the. American neoconservative branch of the Republican Party uh, many years ago, there were arguments made by uh, some intellectuals in that neighborhood that to some extent, I mean, I think this is, I'm curious to uh, hear what you think. I think this is a misappropriation of Kant. Uh, the idea of um, the spreading of democracy as a, a, a key to peace. So there was beyond the cynical and fraudulent justifications of the Iraq war, there was one neighborhood of the argument that was, well, one way to pacify the Middle East is to spread Republican government, uh, a la perpetual peace, um, and bring that about as it were, uh, forcefully. Um, what's your sense, I guess, of that specific issue and other areas where this has been actually practically influential in international relations? Well, yes, you're right that, you know, uh, some people um, have made that kind of reading, but certainly that that is not Kant. If you, yeah. want, if I, if you want me to answer in on, uh, you know, strictly on uh, uh, the Kantian perspective on that, I would definitely say that that would be against any Kantian uh, inter possibility of interpreting Kantian, uh, Kant in that way. So there is no chance because for Kant, certainly uh, there is no possibility to overrule, as I, as I referred before, <coughs> the principle of autonomy, of sovereignty of states. So there is no, there is no means to end justification that we could get uh, from the idea of uh, achieving peace that would allow us to overthrow uh, a government in order to make a democratic government. Um, then uh, the other, I think that this ambiguity perhaps came from some sort of more contemporary uh, acute, even though, uh, you know, I think in, incomplete, uh, understanding and reinterpreta reinterpretations of Kant as with the democratic uh, peace uh, theory. Uh, and then, of course, in 1983, Michael Doyle published a couple of famous essays where he uh, uh, drew this, uh, this connection between uh, uh, being a democratic state and being uh, inherently or in connection to another democratic state, a peaceful entity. Right. And I guess that perhaps uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, other scholars that follow uh, trying to extend that sort of, uh, uh, of, of statement in order to uh, claim that the more uh, we have democracy, democracies in the world, the more the chances of peace will be uh, likely uh, to be shared. But I think that is a dangerous uh, uh, conclusion out of which I think uh, we are uh, seeing nowadays what consequences uh, uh, are in front of our eyes, what sort of instability we have in those areas where uh, at least those claims have been uh, applied. Um, so 
I think I said that that was uh, partially uh, the, even though uh, a, a great intuition uh, and, uh, and, and, and empirical evidences are uh, playing in favor to Michael Doyle's uh, thesis on the democratic peace theory. But I think in terms of the Kantian perspective, that is still a sort of incomplete uh, development of the theory that we can find in the perpetual uh, peace mm -hmm. because uh, we do not have uh, developed enough or sometimes not at all, the second and the third definitive article that I mentioned uh, before namely uh, the League of States that eventually would lead to some sort of confederation of states, nor the cosmopolitan right as an essential element for the construction of the perpetual peace. So I think there is still room to work in that direction, also for international relations. So let, let me ask you uh, to follow up. What would it mean to work in that direction in international relations? What would it mean to work on the second and the third uh, definite, definitive articles uh, in, a, in, the, in the real world, as they say? Yeah, well, yeah, that's, a, that's a certainly a major task in the sense that if we take the second uh, definitive article, the one concerning international law, and that's where uh, and that's where the league of state is thought um, then certainly we do have to strengthen the international organizations and uh, the bound the boundaries that keep the member states within uh, uh, the uh, for instance the un system the uh, nato system or the many other uh, regimes of uh, the WTO system, integrating the WTO system with uh, 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 basic uh, rights like human rights in that sense, uh, and somehow trying to overcome what is called fragmentation in international law mm -hmm. uh, that has been affecting all these uh, regimes as uh, being a sort of autonomous uh, regimes. So in that sense, uh, it's uh, going forward and overcoming that sort of fragmentation that would help uh, uh, moving forward into the Kantian uh, project. So, mm -hmm. uh, but the elements are already there, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, there are many different regimes that are operating and are keeping uh, states connected together, uh, sharing uh, certain principles. It's a matter of not letting those regimes working autonomously from certain some certain sorts of constitutional principles or rights yeah. uh, which are the essential feature of the Kantian sketch because he Kant uses often uh, at least four times uh, the uh, he refers to the idea of a cosmopolitan constitution mm -hmm. which would eventually come out out of this uh, sketch in different right. uh, writings so and then cosmopolitan right, I assume, would sort of inspire open, open border, more open border kinds of uh, regimes, free movements, and so on and so forth, right? Yeah, that, that is certainly one aspect of the cosmopolitan right. Let's say that is the happy uh, aspect of it. So yeah. like fostering commerce, there is certainly a, a connection between the cosmopolitan right and uh, uh, the possibility of uh, increasing commerce uh, uh, among nations. Uh, but there are also many other aspects. I mean, the cosmopolitan right to visit 
is a, is a right which includes uh, many claims uh, within itself. It, it includes also the protection of uh, asylum seekers. Uh, Kant uh, said explicitly, I mean, that in those cases where individuals are risking their life, if they are sent back, then the state is obliged to, uh, 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 to accept uh, the citizens in their, uh, those citizens in their territory. Of course, there is not the same kind of obligation if someone comes for commercial purposes. I mean, uh, you can uh, evaluate whether that is convenient and so on and so forth. So in that sense, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very composite uh, right which informs the relation uh, between uh, foreign citizens and the states. And in right. that sense, I, I use the term constructivism in cosmopolitan law because it has this sort of function of constructing what is called the cosmopolitan constitution. Right, right. And then from this explanation that you uh, laid out for us so nicely, it's, I think, pretty evident to see why this liberal project in international relations is under siege right now, right? With the rise of Brexit, with the rise of protectionism and populism uh, here in the United States and then, you know, parts of the EU, sure. and Poland, Hungary, and so on and so forth. It's basically all of these three legs of this chair, this wobbling chair, are, somebody is trying to kick them out, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, in that sense, that these are not the best times for think, or at least it doesn't seem that uh, states and politicians are thinking nowadays in a cosmopolitan way. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, we are also in Europe experiencing a very deep and uh, floods of people that are sinking in the Mediterranean Sea, escaping for uh, a very um, uh, dangerous situations in their own countries. Um, but also weak economically, weak states in Southern Europe that are uh, unable uh, uh, to organize uh, and uh, uh, direct these uh, flows uh, in such a way that they can find a, a decent future in Europe. So it is true that is the picture look uh, looks pretty sad in uh, in many respects. Um, but it is true also uh, what I said at the beginning that the cosmopolitan ideal and the ideal of peace is never something. It's a tension which right. runs across history and is full of contradiction. In that sense, one can't uh, explain the way in which or whether uh, we should uh, look at history as a way of confirming or disconfirming yeah. the of cosmopolitan right. he says no, we should look as if uh, you know uh, the, we do not have uh, any major impediment for the realization of this project which doesn't mean that there is a, a factual guarantee in, in past uh, uh, historical achievements that the project will go on. We can lose it. I mean, there is no guarantee of that sense. Uh, right, right. It's a matter of uh, struggling uh, towards uh, perpetual. Yeah, time. right. And, and that you would always have to struggle towards it. That it's Absolutely, yes. Yeah. 
I, th I think, if I may, I think that that is the most interesting aspect uh, that emerged in Kant in comparison to other uh, predecessors yeah. like the Abbé de Saint-Pierre or, or Rousseau that uh, Kant refers as those who were uh, made uh, fun of by other international lawyers or, or, or politicians because they had this utopian idea of thinking about the possibility of a world peace that eventually will arrive. So in that sense, Kant uh, doesn't want to be uh, naive as, uh, as his predecessors. So in that sense, uh, there is some sort of utopianism in his view, but it's mediated by the idea of this step-by-step -step process that has to be shaped up in a legal form. He doesn't want to get only the kings or uh, the aristocracy involved in the process. That's why he's speaking about uh, republics as, as uh, the building block of his theory. Uh, the citizens and the education of the citizens right. Uh, yeah. starting point yeah and it also suggests that one of the main aspects of this program which i agree with you is one of the most interesting one and isn't discussed a lot is maintenance some kind of political maintenance yeah and that allows you to put like a moment like now in europe or in the united states if you want into perspective yeah i mean um his idea um is that um we need we need to uh, 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 conceive a history in a way that uh, uh, we can find some sort of evidences in the past that uh, do not discourage us to think about this. At the same time, we have to think that uh, morality and politics and law might find and uh, some sort of agreement in what he calls. Uh, the uh, moral uh, politician, uh, someone who thinks about politics in, uh, in some sort of uh, long-term uh, perspective. That is also the attitude uh, that uh, politicians should have in terms of maintaining uh, the perspective of uh, a long-term uh, peace as a sort of goal that eventually uh, humanity uh, uh, will uh, will achieve, but uh, but as I said, uh, there is no ending point in that in that effort, and I think there is also probably a religious aspect that is included, which is also very interesting in Kant. Uh, and um, for instance, in the uh, writing uh, which uh, is uh, um, where he addresses the, the role of a religion within uh, the boundaries of the mere reason. Uh, he makes a parallel between uh, the pluralism of case uh, in order to, to uh, uh, find uh, some sort of peaceful coexistence. Uh, in both cases, we need to suppose some sort of rational unity out of which, and that is some sort of rational idea of a religion out of which the plurality of confessions and states, in terms of the peace between states, can be uh, conceived. And that is a regulative idea. That's, that's, I think, very interesting that he makes that kind of analogy. Yeah. Um, you know, going back to uh, 
if I remember correctly, uh, the first part of the essay, there's this interesting set of discussions on uh, what undermines uh, peace, on the kind of practices that uh, undermine uh, international uh, trust, right? And I think one of the interesting points that he makes there is that, and I think there was a historical background in terms of what he saw happening around him uh, as he's writing the essay in international relations and what he would probably still see to a large degree uh, playing out in Syria as we speak, that countries can't be treated as so many bags of potatoes or so many bags of rice moved from one person, you know, moved from one political power to the other and that they <coughs> have some kind of organic soul or organic um, a national principle uh, and that there's something particularly offensive in treating uh, them uh, uh, as objects that of course you know, resonates with a famous uh, formulation of the categorical imperative. Uh, do you see him as having this unified view of moral worth across from individuals to political entities? Just like you can't treat individuals merely as means to an end, you can't adopt that kind of foreign policy? Yeah, well, in the preliminary articles, he right. said explicitly that uh, what you were referring to, uh, I mean, that you cannot uh, uh, obtain a state um, uh, with the money, you cannot uh, inherit a state. So state entities are moral entities. That's true. That, that is the way in which uh, Kant conceives uh, state entities. And that and uh, certainly a Republican uh, state entities. So this uh, moral status for state entities is the basis for cosmopolitan law as a, as a sort of a law which embeds uh, uh, morality within itself. Um, the natural law of visit is what he calls, what he refers to when yeah. he's of, uh, of the cosmopolitan right. So yes, I mean, states are not just entities that can be cut and made in pieces and assigned at pleasure. I mean, uh, he sees that uh, there is uh, an ethos uh, behind the states that is the um, soul of the states and also the ethical component of the state. So in that sense, the modernity of Kant uh, in respect also to other uh, predecessors, uh, it's certainly the combination of the idea of the state, which already started with Hobbes, uh, but we might say also uh, Machiavelli in certain uh, respects, um, and the idea of uh, an ethical profile of the state, which, which, uh, which is certainly uh, uh, something distinct of the Kantian uh, reasoning. Um, so, so yes, I, I agree that if you uh, consider that maintenance uh, of the conditions are um, uh, one of the building blocks of Kant's theory, I would agree with that. And many interpreters have thought that at some point the cosmopolitan condition would blow the boundaries of the states in Kantian terms. I don't, I don't agree with that. I actually disagree with that. Mm -hmm. I think 
that certainly states would be modified in terms of uh, interrelation to the other states, but as entities, they would remain as one of the three building blocks of the theory that he wants to sketch, because they are not just uh, contingent entities that we do have uh, as we can have something else in their place. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, of what it is for Kant to exit the natural, uh, um, the, the, the state of nature, um, the condition of uh, what Hobbes already described of war uh, among uh, all individuals, of all against all. Uh, but when, just to give a brief sketch on this, when, when uh, Kant describes uh, what it means to uh, create a civil condition, which means a condition uh, regulated by law, which is the only condition that can keep war uh, away from, from uh, interpersonal relations. That condition is something that includes uh, what he calls the original contract that makes individuals to construct a state. So the state is an entity that, that results from the exit of the natural condition of war of all against all. So yeah. it's not just uh, it's not just a, a contingent element of the sketch yeah. that he's uh, right. offering us. Right. Claudia, I guess a cynic would uh, ask, um, how do we disprove Hobbes? In other words, for Hobbes, the state of nature is inherent to international relations. He has this you know, famous uh, description in the Leviathan about states being like gladiators uh, towards each other, their weapons always uh, at the ready, and that order and the state of peace is almost for Hobbes by definition inside the state, but can't be uh, uh, between the states. And then the Kantian program that is being drawn out here, however interpretation we want to uh, use it is the move towards uh, uh, increasing the force and trust in uh, uh, international institutions and uh, international exchanges and uh, the spreading of Republican government. Uh, but the cynic and the Hobbesian would say the only reason why institutions have force is that they're backed by coercive power, that they're backed by guns, essentially and that international institutions have essentially um, regularly failed to deliver in times of crisis, right? That they regularly fall apart, they fail to uh, uh, prevent genocide uh, in Bosnia, they fail to prevent genocide in Rwanda, they fail to prevent genocide in Sudan, they fail to prevent genocide in uh, uh, Syria. Um, what can we say to this Hobbesian cynic? Well, we can say a few things. Not sure if he uh, or she would be ever convinced, but um, first of all, uh, the, most, uh, the more philosophical answer is the following one. What Kant has tried, tried to do uh, against Hobbes in that sense is to prove that it is not rational or is not enough rational to think of the exit of the state of nature from the state of nature 
without solving the problem of a state of nature among states, which means that if we don't, if we don't solve also that problem, then insecurity of the individuals and the citizens within the state would remain. Property would not be secure. So the states, you know, by themselves, uh, if they are thought as entities within a state of nature, that is an international state of nature, do, cannot offer any security to the individuals, no more than the lack of securities that individuals had within the state of nature without the state. Mm -hmm. so that, 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 is one, that is one thing. Then the other thing uh, that is more perhaps a technical um, side of, of the questions that you ask is that it is true that um, you know, many of those uh, international organizations that we do have nowadays, um, uh, they do not have, uh, well, if not all actually, they do not have a, 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 a use of legitimate force. Right. Uh, because that is what exactly uh, defines uh, state sovereignty. Right. Uh, so here, I think uh, the answer can take different forms. There are certainly uh, uh, aspects related to economic interest and disadvantages that would come out from non-cooperation uh, at the international level. For instance, uh, uh, Brexit is... Uh, uh, threatening uh, uh, UK citizens and, uh, and, and companies uh, with the loss of investments and financial uh, uh, assets uh, that has followed the uh, exit from the EU. So yeah. that is one element, for instance. Yeah. Um, other uh, that, you know, would, would make cooperation, even at the international level, uh, more, ad uh, more advantages to... Uh, to the, uh, to the interest of uh, the citizens. Mm -hmm. um, then other elements for uh, cooperation are that um, uh, there is some sort of educational element uh, of uh, what has also been defined as the hypocrisy of uh, some sort of civilization in terms of uh, interacting uh, with uh, other foreign uh, neighbors uh, in terms of uh, civil ways of interacting, which it's something that uh, runs across history and which helps uh, keeping uh, the situation stable, even if not just, but at least stable for uh, the possibility of uh, operating autonomously within. Uh, so even without a, a real cooperation, but at least with some sort of independency mm. uh, in operating within a, a, a stable uh, situation of what is like sort of modus vivendi, to use right. uh, Wald's uh, terminology. Right. So yes, there is no coercion in that sense. There cannot right. be uh, coercion. Also Kant thought that uh, the problem of coercion at the international level is uh, the, the puzzle to solve uh, for international law. Um, we should yeah. find some sort of way that doesn't require that. Yeah. I mean, I think one element that Kant doesn't take seriously enough is um, 
the interaction between the moral psychology of people that are subject to law and international systems and the possibility of actually maintaining them. So just like in the domestic context, to take a very recent example from uh, uh, this country, the failure of both local and federal governments to stop gun violence is sparking a real kind of cynicism about the possibilities of government, about you know, the very idea of government in some uh, cases. I mean, that's part of what you're seeing in these remarkable new children's crusades here, that the kids are coming out and saying, you guys are supposed to take care of us and you fell asleep on your watch. Um, that same kind of cynicism about the, po and by the way, it's interesting, that is actually when things begin to p potentially, you know, uh, not to jinx it, move. Uh, on uh, public policy, uh, that same kind of dynamic can play out internationally. You know, when the people in Srebrenica see the uh, uh, Dutch UN battalion, you know, refusing to fight the Serbs, uh, or when the people being, you know, bombed in Syria see the complete incapacity of uh, uh, international organizations to help them, they be <laughs> they become fans of the cynic, if you want, if, they, if they're lucky enough to uh, uh, stay alive. Um, and so that kind of attitudinal question, which I think Kant spends no time on, really, is really hard to divorce from, um, at least in a non-ideal theory world, is hard to divorce from this picture. Yeah, that is true, uh, even though I have to say that uh, Kant says something in that sense. And he, he uses this sentence uh, that is um, a wrong committed somewhere in the world nowadays, at his times, uh, is already felt as a wrong everywhere else in the world. So, so he see, it seemed that uh, he had in mind exactly what you are saying, even though, of course, that was just at the beginning of, uh, of a cosmopolitan way of thinking uh, in modern terms. And therefore, we could not uh, see some sort of right. global public uh, opinion or public sphere as we do uh, nowadays and yeah. you know uh, protesting refusing to uh, embrace uh, weapons or you know protesting against uh, certain political um, yeah. decisions on on guns and so on and so forth yeah. but but this idea of a global public sphere as something emerging from this uh, cosmopolitan uh, building block theory, that was something that he referred to, at least in a couple of uh, circumstances, as a very important uh, aspect of, yeah. of the theory. Yeah. You know, one thing that's interesting historically, actually, so perpetual peace is written right around 1800. Seven, right? 1795. 1795. So the Napoleonic Wars follow, right, pretty quickly. Uh, and they're done by around 1815, if I remember correctly. And then the, so the century that immediately follows perpetual peace is actually one of the most peaceful, relatively speaking, centuries in Europe's history, the 1815-1915 uh, 
uh, hundred years are largely peaceful, at least in comparison to what came after. Um, but historically, they're peaceful because of a sort of cynical set of truces, the so-called concert of Europe and balance of power idea that, you know, France has to be kept in check and so on and so forth, uh, which Kant would probably um, reject in the beginning. He has that famous line in the uh, uh, beginning of the essay about uh, the only acceptable kind of solution to the problem of international relations is peace. Any, any uh, agreement that keeps you know, some issues to be solved at a later date is a truth, is a truce worthy of the casuistry of a Jesuit or something like that, remember? Um, so he, he certainly rejects these kind of realpolitik arrangements and of um, reducing violence, containing violence, or, well, I shouldn't say he rejects, there's a tension there about between his practicality on the one hand and saying, you know, something like this. I mean, you know, Bismarck was a bastard, right? And the cynical one at that. But he tried to limit violence from the idea that if you have a, if you have, if you have a little violence, then, you know, maybe you avoid a lot of violence. So what's your sense on Kant? I mean, as you know, I did some work on this idea of truces and ceasefires and how unlike in Muslim jurisprudence, uh, it's completely neglected in our tradition. I have to confess that part of what I took off from was this Kantian insistence that there's only um, one kind of legitimate regulative ideal, let's say that. Do, do, do you see that as a weakness or is that a misunderstanding of him? No, actually it's in line with uh, the way in which I also am trying to, to interpret Kant. And that's why I insisted uh, on the transitional aspect. Uh, for instance, just to add uh, another example to what you were saying, uh, in the preliminary articles, he says that um, armies progressively will have to be abolished, which means that also war is not something that for Kant, Kant was not one of those pacifists who thought that, you know, war uh, cannot have any place in history whatsoever. Of course, it's a contradictory idea to think about uh, a right of uh, war because there is no right that can be thought in those conditions. But uh, the way in which he looks at the uh, perpetual peace, as we said, is, uh, is uh, in stage that includes also the possibility of non-ideal politics and war is part and truths are also part of this non-ideal politics mm -hmm. uh, as long as uh, those are elements that are realistically and that's the realism in Kant uh, seen as part of a bigger picture are not seen as the solution to the problem that we are trying to uh, face wow. so in that sense truths uh, and armies and also wars uh, certainly war against the unjust uh, enemy are uh, part of the non-ideal transitional yeah. uh, 
um, even and but obviously this is not like a truce. I mean that's something that Kant wants to make clear. And he had other examples before. Uh, yeah. Of course, he refers, uh, for instance, to uh, the Congress at the, uh, the uh, at the Hague um, when he used the word uh, Congress uh, for uh, the Hague, the General States at the Hague, where he says. Um, that sort of stability that was created among different courts in uh, in uh, in Europe didn't last very long. Yeah. Uh, he also uses in another uh, passage a very interesting expression where he says uh, peace cannot be like a balancing of forces because that would be like the uh, Swift's house. Uh, where uh, uh, whenever a bird would uh, sit on it, it would fall apart. So yeah. whenever something uh, new and unforeseen would uh, shake that uh, that equilibrium, then you know there yeah. would be more stability uh, to yeah. sustain the the, the 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 relation among states. So that's why he didn't think that that could be uh, the solution. But that could be an intermediate uh, point to to get. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's always been fascinating to me that, I mean, in the end, there still is this teleological commitment here, right? That, yes, truce as a, you know, yeah. a, a moment in the way towards something bigger, towards something stable, towards something more permanent, that it's an interesting preoccupation with permanent stability. Um, Yeah, I mean, that could be argued to be ahistorical. I, comparatively, it's interesting to think about. So, for example, in some parts of Islamic jurisprudence, the idea of truce is very, very well defined. And, um, you know, the, the Prophet Muhammad famously uh, 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 strikes a truce very early uh, uh, in uh, his political uh, uh, career. It's known as the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Uh, and the jurisprudence that developed around that has been something like, if we adapt it into our own terms, there are going to be groups that you are going to have absolutely nothing in common with, where the cosmopolitan idea, if you want, is rejected. Um, that doesn't mean that you have to fight to the death with these groups. You have to generate as much stable lack of killing as possible, maybe for a while, and then kind of keep renewing it if that serves your purposes. Actually, so the interesting thing is what is embraced is that house that you spoke about that keeps falling apart. And the idea is that sometimes the best that you can do is build it up in a half-assed way and wait a few years. Okay. Uh, and then either it's kind of like if you you know if you uh think about arabian nights like the the famous uh, tale of arabian nights you kind of make it to the next day make it to the next day and maybe you've lived a life in which you don't kill and don't get killed now it's not a very attractive picture that i that is true yeah i think yeah i, mean, I think the, yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing is if you always have a teleological view that, you know, this cessation of violence is okay, but it's only okay if it leads to the more permanent 
robust, legalized, just condition, are there some circumstances, is there a possibility where that very teleology undermines the quiet? Where that very expectation can undermine the quiet? Yeah, well, obviously in Kant, the program of teleology is, uh, you know, very complex and specific and uh, is never a sort of uh, objective teleology as we, we will have later on in uh, German idealism, right. uh, especially right. Hegel and the progress of history in that sense. Um, but uh, so it's always a sort of regulatory uh, way of looking at facts and in that sense uh, looking at uh, how, for instance, we can suspend uh, the peremptory force of, uh, of norms. And the right to realize our freedom as individuals and as citizens of the state in order to uh, guarantee, for instance, security and all other elements. So in that sense, uh, the uh, non-ideal and teleological aspect that we can see here, it's uh, only uh, for some sort of uh, um, uh, non-peremptory norms that are some sort of suboptimal conditions right. uh, that uh, we have to accept because the time are not mature enough for. Uh, so, right. so in that sense, there must be a, a, a cognition of uh, what the time are up to. Uh, so in that sense, the realism that comes in into this sort of normative understanding. Then the other element is that for Kant, the priority, uh, normative priority, uh, it's freedom. Freedom is the only uh, natural innate uh, right that we do have and that we should uh, guarantee with all the other apparatus uh, that we can have in terms of law, politics, and the state, and the organization. So, uh, like, um, a truce in that sense can never satisfy uh, uh, and fulfill the normative ideal that is, you know, above all the construction, political and juridical construction that we uh, can ob obtain. So mm -hmm. that's why it would be insufficient for or can as a mm -hmm. as a result. Claudia, yeah. Claudia, I know I know I've been uh, keeping you for quite a while, and it's uh, it's getting late in Rome. So this has been really fantastic, and I thank you very very much. Thank you, Nier. I really enjoy it. I look forward to seeing you in Boston. Absolutely.